So uh, I'd like to welcome you to the Center for the Study of World Religions. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and very happy to have you here with us tonight. This series we have of faculty new books is one of the, um, certainly my favorite events of the center and I think always a very fascinating evening to, to go beyond congratulating a faculty member on nice book, great cover, to actually exploring the book and understanding a bit of all the work and energy, blood, sweat, and tears that the faculty put into the writing of a book. And it, it's always an invariably exciting event to hear authors talk about their book. And then they choose three or two discussants to respond to the book, not to give book reports, but rather to open it up and to talk about it from some angle or another. And that will be our procedure tonight. So we'll begin with the speaker, the author I'll introduce in a moment, talking about his book. Then the three discussants will take a turn responding to the book. Then the author has a chance to respond to the respondents. And then they shift their chairs in front here facing out and all four engage all of you into the in discussion. And around seven o'clock we'll call it uh, to a, an official halt, but the reception can continue for a while so that other, you can continue to interact and share. So that is our conversational format. And part of the conversational format is if you are inclined to get something more to eat or drink during the session, don't be shy to get up and um, help yourself. So it's my pleasure tonight to introduce tonight's event on Beyond Timbuktu, an intellectual history of Muslim West Africa by introducing my friend and colleague on the faculty here, Usman Khan. Usman Khan, I think, is known to probably everyone in the room is the Prince Awalid bin Talal Professor of Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society here at Harvard. He is also a professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And here at the Div School is also the counselor and denominational counselor for Muslim students. His MPhil and his PhD are from the Institut d'Etudes Politiques in Paris. Uh, beginning in 2002, he was an associate professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. He came to Harvard Divinity School in 2012 as the first uh, holder of the chair that he currently occupies. He is an expert and has studied in length, at length uh, the history of Islamic religious <coughs> institutions and organizations since the 18th century. He is engaged in a long process that shows up in our book of documenting the intellectual history of Islam in Africa. Uh, he's very well published, many books and many articles. His books include Muslim, Muslim Modernity in Postcolonial Nigeria, that came out in 2003. And he's also focused on the phenomenon of Muslim globalization. Thus, in two 2010, with Oxford University, he published Homeland is the Arena, Religion, Transnationalism, and the Integration of Senegalese Immigrants in America, which looks at the Senegalese immigrants to the United States and New York and the importance that these immigrants assign to their religious communities for the organizations of their lives in a new place. Uh, tonight, we have this beautiful book, Beyond Timbuktu. And I must say, um, in, in um, turning things over now to Usman, that the book is a wonderful work of scholarship well beyond my expertise and field, but it also has this uh, very rich uh, personal tone to it. In the opening prologue, Usman talks about growing up 
with this kind of double education, double world, uh, Western education, but also traditional Quranic training. And um, learning multiple languages at once, learning studies and academic work in the West and also in the Islamic tradition. And I think we'll see tonight that marvelously it all came together in an integral way in a person who is kind of a global person who knows these things in so many rich dimensions. So let us welcome Usman Khan to tell us about his book. Uh, thank you very much, Frank, for hosting this event. And I also thank my colleagues, Ali Asani, Falun Gong, and Khalid Ruahib for agreeing to serve as respondent. And I thank you all for coming. I see many uh, faces here, colleagues, students. I know that you have no shortage of other important tasks, so I very much appreciate your uh, coming here to uh, attend this book event. Now, I would like to answer four questions and leave it to the respondent to uh, ask me more questions and to critique the books. The first is what this book is about, what are its arguments and uh, features. And the second, to what ideas uh, and to what theories the book relate. The third, if just a browsing reader were to approach the book in a bookstore, which pages I would hope that they would encounter. And finally, what are my uh, wishes with regard to the implications of the book? And I will start in a nutshell, what is this book all about? What are its unique arguments or features? Beyond Timbuktu is about the literary cultures of West Africa. The old West African city of Timbuktu is famous as a great center of Muslim learning from Islam's golden age. It is renowned for its many, many schools and its archives of rare Arabic manuscripts. Yet, Timbuktu is not unique. It was one among many scholarly uh, centers to exist in uh, pre-colonial West Africa. And other prominent centers of Muslim learning in West Africa include Agadez in present-day Niger, Walata and Shingit in present-day Mauritania, Jene in Mali, and by the way, the cover page here features the mosque of Jene and not that of Timbuktu. Um, Kaulak, Pir, Koki in Senegal, Kano, Katsina, Borno in Nigeria to cite just a few uh, centers. And in these centers, Muslim scholars developed tradition of Islamic learning which contributed to the development of scholarship, not just in West Africa, but also in the Maghrib. So West African scholars traveled to North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula to study, but also to teach. Likewise, Arabs and Berbers also traveled to the opposite direction to Timbuktu or other places to study. So beyond Timbuktu charts the rise of Muslim learning in West Africa from the beginning to the present day, it examines the shifting contexts that have influenced the production and dissemination of Islamic knowledge and shaped the conflicting interpretation of Muslim intellectuals over the course of the centuries, particularly from the 16th to the 21st century. So highlighting 
the significant breadth and vitality of the Muslim intellectual tradition in uh, West Africa beyond Timbuktu seeks to correct lingering misconceptions in both the West and the Middle East that sub-Saharan African Muslim heritage represents a minor thread in uh, Islam's largest tapestry. It shows that West African Muslims have never been isolated. To the contrary, their connections with Muslim worldwide is robust and long-standing. The Sahara was not an insurmountable barrier, but a bridge that allowed Arabs, Berbers, and uh, uh, West, other West Africans to sustain relations with, uh, to sustain strong relations through trade, through diplomacy, through intellectual and spiritual exchange. The West African Islamic tradition of Islamic learning has grown in tandem with the spread of Arabic literacy, making Arabic one of the most widely spoken language in Africa today. About two-thirds of the Arabs live in Africa, by the way. In the post-colonial period, that is, after the Second World War, dramatic transformations in West African education, together with the rise of media technologies and the ever-evolving public roles of West African Muslim intellectuals, continue to spread knowledge of Islam throughout the continent. Unfortunately, the Western public and academy has been for a long time ignorant of this uh, vibrant intellectual and religious tradition, and Beyond Timbuktu provides an accessible account to the development of this tradition from the earlier stages through its complex interactions with colonialism and present uh, fascinating engagement with modernity. I hope readers will uh, enjoy discovering a rich scholarly tradition that is likely to be new to them, and that those who are already familiar with the tradition will appreciate the historical uh, perspective and analysis. So how is the book uh, structured? Basically, there, there are nine chapters, an introduction, a prologue, which is largely autobiographical, and then there are uh, five first chapters that address the historical development of scholarly communities and networks that became the pillar of Islamic knowledge production and uh, dissemination in the Sahara and uh, other parts of West Africa. This include a chapter on uh, the core curriculum followed by the student on their path to become Muslim scholars. And actually, there is a, a great deal of similarity between the curriculum in West Africa or in centers like Timbuktu, but uh, North Africa and other parts in the Muslim world. And there is also a chapter on the discursive tradition, particular to West Africa, in which I analyze major debates in the 18th and 19th centuries, <laughs> such as relations with, uh, uh, between Muslims and non-Muslims, slavery, the role of Islam in state building, etc. The last four chapters of the book explain how Islamic education was challenged by colonial rule, by European colonial rule, but also how modernizing Islamic uh, institutions of learning have expanded and changed the worldview of uh, quite a few West African Muslims. These changes were partly the result of the fact that support and sponsorship from Muslim countries and organizations outside of West Africa uh, have played such an important role in shaping uh, 
the institutional development over the last uh, 50 years or so. Uh, and this, in turn, has contributed to shape to shift the shape of the intellectual fields of West African Islam along the lines found in other parts of the Muslim world. And that's why, for example, the Hanbali school of thought, which was a uh, school of law, which was unknown, or Wahhabi movements that were, not, uh, that were unknown mostly before the mid-50s actually became widespread. Likewise, there are also Shiite influences in uh, uh, many parts of West Africa, and Shiism is now uh, practiced by many, 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 many people. Now the wide angle, to what realities, practices, theories, ideas this book uh, attempt to relate and how. Among the contemporary debates to which this book seeks to contribute, African historiography and cosmopolitanism are paramount. As you know, in his philosophy of history lectures, German philosopher uh, Hegel claimed that Africa is no historical part of the world and described it as unhistorical and undeveloped spirit. He also separated North Africa because it was rather related to Asia and Europe. Unfortunately, most of Western scholarship in the past and present uh, echoes what uh, uh, this uh, prejudice perspective, uh, uh, Hegelian perspective. But since a huge body of literature on West African history has refuted this claim, this Hegelian claim, and this book demonstrates how Africa was indeed a historical part of the world as proven by its integration into world uh, political economy for over a millennium. There were great empires and civilizations that flourished in Africa before the foreign invasions, and there were also high rate of literacy and scholarship in West Africa at some period that couldn't uh, be found in uh, some parts of Europe. Yet most of the post-colonial African historiography sought to write African history using uh, colonial language sources, oral tradition, and archaeology. So this book highlights another category of sources, writing in Arabic languages or in African languages written in the Arabic script. The history of uh, Arabic writing in Africa spans a period of 800 years, and West African Muslim scholars cite in their work scholars from a variety of regions. And I think this is evidence that they have long been integrated into a global network of uh, intellectual exchange. In addition, uh, while Europeans and Hegel, while Europeans since Hegel have long viewed the Sahara as a formidable barrier that makes North Africa more akin to the Middle East or Mediterranean Europe, the political, economic, economic and scholastic networks documented in the books are often centered around the Sahara and hi highlight how those living around the deserts have for centuries used it as a bridge to form large uh, uh, networks, scholarly networks. So this leads to the important debate, to the other important debate to which this book seeks to uh, contribute, which is cosmopolitanism. Black Africa has been represented in academia as well as in popular representation as a continent of warring tribes. One of the main challenges of nation building, so the story goes, 
was to create a sense of belonging among different tribes separated by colonial and post-colonial boundaries. So this has been so well documented that it has become, if not the single story, at least the dominant narrative. So the, this book argues that large sections of West African people have, in the past and the present, proven their ability to transcend parochial identities and differences in a common cause and have indeed claimed their independence of thought and common destiny. And more than anything else, this is embodied in a long literary tradition that has been obscured by European colonial hegemonic discourses of the past century, as well as racial stereotypes that tended to represent black Africa essentially as a continent of orality and thus obscured its literary tradition. Finally, as uh, Professor Clooney said, this book is a bit autobiographical for me, as my family and I are part of this tradition of Islamic and Arabic scholarship. I draw heavily from my personal experience growing up in the traditional Islamic educational system. My involvement with Arabophone education and the schools run by my family that embrace both Islamic and modern uh, educational models. My own professional career has been the product of both Western Europhone education and West African Arabophone education. So uh, that's what I uh, have tried to document also in this book. Now to close up, a close up, if a just browsing reader were to approach the book at a bookstore, which pages I would hope they would encounter and why, I hope that a just browsing reader would read all the epigraphs of the prologue, the nine chapters of the book, and <laughs> the epigraphs of the prologue, the nine chapters of the book, and the epilogue, because they either illustrate a main argument of a chapter or a major misconception about Africa that I seek to correct. So to repeat it again, and I know that my colleagues at the Divinity School have heard it again and again, my claim is that Africa has a long intellectual tradition in Arabic and African languages in the Arabic script. Uh, is this a form of imperialism? That is another debate. For example, in the epigraph of the prologue, I cite former Ghanaian uh, head of state, Kwame Nkrumah, who in his installation address as the chancellor of the University of Ghana in 1961, lamented the destruction of West African centers of learning by foreign invaders. Indeed, in, in 1591, a Moroccan expedition, or a Sardian expedition, of thousands of heavily armed uh, troops attacked the Songhai Empire, of which Shimbuktu was a part, precipitating its collapse. They confiscated thousands of books and manuscripts and moved them to Morocco. Three centuries afterwards, the French troop led by Commandant Archinar conquered also the Islamic State uh, founded by Umar Tal in 1889, of which Timbuktu was a part. They also confiscated thousands of manuscripts and moved them to the, Fr to the French uh, uh, Bibliothèque Nationale, where they are still housed uh, and called Fonds Archinar, in collection of Archinar, who led the military expedition. In 2013, during the French counteroffensive to liberate northern Mali occupied by Islamists, the latter burned or stole also a few thousands of manuscripts. So 
I hope that browsing readers would read page one to six of the book, which are largely autobiographical. I believe that my own family and uh, personal story, which prompted me to write this book, reflect to a large extent the transformations of the Islamic scholarly tradition uh, since the colonial encounter. Now my thought wishes with regard to the book's implication or consequence. In 1964, Nigerian intellectual Abdul Mumini, after whom the first University of Independent Niger was named, published a state of uh, the art education uh, of Africa, state of the art study of education in Africa, identifying its strengths and weaknesses. He argued forcefully that the reform of the educational system in Africa uh, was a priority. And five decades after the publication of Mumuni, knowledge pro production is still fragmented, and the current educational system is not uh, still fully capable of integrating the different intellectual tradition. And I believe that uh, the divide between intellectuals educated in European languages and in African languages, particularly the Arabophone, needs to be bridged in order to make the intellectual legacy of the African continent legible and to build a strong and solid foundation for education in the new millennium. I hope that uh, many people in Africa and beyond will come to be aware of the fact that Africa has uh, Africa is home to very old colleges and an impressive intellectual tradition that is uh, underappreciated. I hope that by showing the history, rigor, and the vitality of this tradition, that others will come to appreciate everything it has to it has offered to the world in the past and still has to offer. Additionally. I hope that this book will help to bridge the considerable gap left by a skewed Eurocentric perspective on Africa and African intellectual history and allow a greater collaboration between the vibrant Islamic and Western intellectual traditions that have taken root in Africa and have benefited me personally. I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Professor Khan, for opening the book for us and telling us so many insights into how it came about. I should mention that I, I passed the book around, and so if you haven't seen it, you'll be able to take a look at it. And Usman has very generously uh, made copies available at the author's discount out at the table. So you can get them, I think, 40% discount, which is a very uh, attractive possibility. And if you're very kind to him, he might even sign it for you <laughs> afterwards, so <laughs> we can see about that. I'm very happy now to introduce, in the order of their presentations, our three discussants for uh, opening up further angles of the book. Uh, Falu Nagam comes from Boston University, is over here. Welcome to Across the River. Uh, he is a professor of anthropology and director of the African Language Program at BU. His research interests include the interactions between African languages and non-African languages, the adaptations of Islam in Sub-Saharan Africa and Ajami literatures, records of African language, <coughs> sorry, African languages written in Arabic script. He seeks to understand the knowledge buried in African Ajami literatures, the historical, social, cultural, and religious heritage that found expression in this manner. 
Another area of his work is the language analysis for the determination of national origin, LADU, a subfield of forensic linguistics. He is the author, most recently, of Muslims Beyond the Arab World, The Odyssey of Ajami and the Muridiyah, uh, Oxford University Press. Our second respondent will be closer to home, Khalid al-Ruhayeb from Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. He is the James Richard Jewett Professor of Arabic and of Islamic Intellectual History. Khalid's research interests include the intellectual and cultural history of Arabic Islamic world in the Mamluk and early Ottoman empires, the history of Arabic logic, Islamic theology and philosophy. He did his studies uh, BA level in Copenhagen, the MA at the American University in Beirut, and his PhD in the Faculty of Oriental Studies at the University of Cambridge. Among his many publications are these three books I'll mention, uh, 2005, Before Homosexuality in the Arabic Islamic World, 1500 to 1800, Relational Syllogisms and the History of Arabic Logic, 900 to 1900, came out in 2010, and in 2015, Islamic Intellectual History in the 17th Century. He is also co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Islamic Philosophy. And then finally, a longtime friend of the center, Ali Asani, who is professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic religions and cultures here at the university. Uh, <coughs> professor Asani is, uh, has been the director of the Prince Awalid bin Talal Islamic Studies program here at the university, as well as professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic religion and cultures here, as I said. He holds a joint appointment between the Committee in the Study of Religion and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. He also serves on the faculty of the Departments of South Asian Studies and African and African American Studies. He's been teaching here at the university since 1983 uh, even while he was finishing his dissertation. Uh, he is a specialist on Islam in South Asia and focuses on Shia and Sufi devotional traditions in the region. In addition, he also studies popular and folk forms of Muslim devotional life and Muslim communities in the West. One of his most recent books is Ecstasy and Enlightenment, the Ismaili Devotional Literatures of South Asia. So I welcome our respondents and ask Follow uh, <coughs> to start us off with the first comment. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for this wonderful opportunity to uh, discuss this very important contribution in the study of Africa in general and Islam in Africa in particular. As Professor Khan has noted, the study of Islam in Africa had uh, been, uh, had several important weaknesses. One of them has always been the overemphasis on oral traditions of Africa. Uh, as if oral traditions are the only forms or sources of knowledge of Africa. The continent then uh, had be, have been associated with therefore a lack of written knowledge. And that's perpetuated both by outsiders but also by insiders. <laughs> Historically, uh, some historians have also looked into oral sources as a legitimate form of claiming some source of knowledge that is Africa. And the result is uh, 
the assumptions of the holistic illiteracy of Africa, the denial of over 800 years of written traditions that Professor Khan has uh, clearly uh, uncovered. And uh, what I would do is really to go through some of the central themes I find to be major contributions in current discussions on Islam in Africa. Some of them relate to my personal experience. Uh, I should mention that Professor Khan is also my professor, because when I was a student at University Gaston Berger in Saint Louis, 1993, he was a professor there. And so I have a personal, uh, uh, I'm personally very happy to have been associated with this. But the second most important uh, interest that I have in his book is the scholarly dimension. And I will begin with what I called the theme of the linguistic paradox in the book, in the study of Africa. When we study the Russians, we have to learn Russian. When we study the Americans, we have to be able to speak English. When we study the French, we have to speak French. But there is an old linguistic paradox in academia that makes it possible that you can be an expert of the Wolof without speaking a word of Wolof. And you may be an expert of the Hausa without knowing a word of Hausa. You were told to study you're going to Francophone Africa, or Anglophone Africa, or Lusophone Africa. As if the Hausa have not written their own histories and their own documented their own trajectories and haven't uh, contributed in the Islamic knowledge since at least the 11th century when Islam came in. And I think that linguistic paradox in academia is tied to what Professor Khan has touched on, and that is the legacy of the Hegelian tradition, that written literacy is regarded as a mark of civilization. Lack of it is a mark of being uncivilized. So the book talks about one ongoing discussions in which Professor Khan has been involved before even this book and uh, the, in his other book called uh, uh, Les Intellectuels Non-Europhones, the discussion between Europhone intellectuals and non-Europhone intellectuals. And this gap is so old and so deep that it's found in every community, almost everywhere in Africa. You'll find in communities people who train in the French mode you will also find in the community people who are trained in the Islamic mode. And these two groups never really communicate. And the result is continuing misunderstanding, because there is no bridge. No one has really tried to bridge them until this book came, came about. The other dimension that I think is also fascinating that I found in the discussion is what he framed as cosmopolitanism and what I frame as the plasticity of ethnicity. 
Although ethnicity has been emphasized, if you look at the literature that's emerging from social scientists, primarily my colleague anthropologist, an emphasis has often been put on ethnicity as a problem, as a major source of crisis in Africa. But his book also demonstrates that ethnicity is actually very elastic. And, and, and the wall of case is a very good case. In fact, the wall of have a proverb that says, last names have no home. The wall of have always seen themselves as cosmopolitan. And in fact, what makes one a wall of is not the ethnicity. What makes one a wall of is linguistic and cultural knowledge. And so, through the book, Professor Khan shows how intermarriage, interactions between Berbers, different ethnicities within uh, West Africa, have been brought together through Islamic scholarship, through peripatetic learning, through quests of knowledge, advanced students who have to travel to identify a particular sheikh with whom to study one particular source of knowledge, have created mobilities of both books and people, resulting in cosmopolitan identities that have expanded, for example, in Senegambia. I think this is a very important nuance dimension of how ethnicity is not always a source of crisis. Another theme that is central in the book is what I call narratives of similarities rather than narratives of differences. And there are several dichotomies that are very common when one reads stories about Islam in Africa. One of them is dichotomies between uh, the center and the periphery. And that, of course, Africa and parts of Asia are part of the periphery. Dichotomies that try to separate the Zahir and the Batin, the natural world, the visible world, and the supernatural world. Dichotomies that try to divide oral and written traditions. But in reality, when you interrogate Islamic texts, <laughs> or you interrogate African societies, these dichotomies do not hold. When do you draw the line? When the poem begins with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, and the rest is in Mandinka, a curse of Adolf Hitler. I have a poem that does exactly that. I have a poem that curses Adolf Hitler, and it begins and ends with Islamic doxologies. The curse is embedded at the center. Where do you put, where do you draw the line? Is this a secular text? Is this a religious text? Is this a, is this, it's, a point, it's a poem. Is this an oral text? Is this a written text? Where do you draw the line? And I think that's really one important uh, contribution that the book addresses, that these dichotomies actually reflect legacies, what Professor Khan calls epistemological dependencies. 
And uh, another aspect that caught my attention, and here I have to use Professor Graham's concept of itisalia that he talked about in one of his important articles, that in Muslim traditions around the world, the desire to connect to the original paradigmatic ummah, the ummah of the initial beginning of the movement of Islam, the pristine for many people that lived a pristine life in Medina. The desire to connect to that original Islamic tradition at its nascent moment has different applications in Islamic Africa. Some have literally sought to leave that idea of the pristine Islam and literally meant jihad of the sword. Others have opted for an ethical experience of itisali. We have an interpretive traditions that emphasizes the ethical dimensions of that original. And the book was able to show that, for example, Omar Tal, a leader of the Tijaniya, who led the jihad of the sword in the area, had drawn his own interpretations of Itisaliya to legitimize his jihad in contrast to other leaders of Sufi movements who have emphasized the ethical dimension. The case that is very clearly shown throughout the book is the challenge to the uniform general understanding of Islam as either violent or the Sufi as always nonviolent, the nuance. That in fact, in certain conditions, a Sufi like Umar Tal could be uh, uh, could be a, a warrior. But in other contexts, other Sufis may not be warriors, may implement the, the ethical dimension of Itis Aliyah. And finally, one narrative that I find is also two narratives that I find very interesting. The first one is the theme, and this is probably a question that I would hope Professor Khan uh, would uh, enlighten me. 
the narrative of the synthesis of saints. In this case, the Tijaniya conceptions of Sheikh Ahmed Al-Tijani as a synthesis of saints, as somebody who embodies the highest ethical and spiritual virtues of sainthood. The theme is also very present in narratives of the Murids. And Shia Amud Bamba is actually regarded as the synthesis of all the prophets, including across Abrahamic faith. Uh, and finally, issues that are also important in the book that he touched on relate to what some of us frame as monoglossic or polyglossic ideologies of language. What I mean is, what is God's language? Is God monolingual? <laughs> Is God a polyglot? <laughs> and these discussions have also created interactions among Muslim scholars in the Ajami literature that I know better. There is actually a poem called Tahmis Bubwalaf by Musa Ka. And in that Tahmis Bubwolof, Musaka's argument is that all languages are equal. And that's a challenge to Arabic hegemony. And the way he, the reasons why he framed it that way is that he presents The prestige of a language as resulting from the function, the, divide, the, the proselytizing function of the language. He argues that Aramaic was special, not because of the people who spoke the language, but because the language was a tool to convey, to convey divine message. And that Hebrew was also special, not because of the people, but because it was a tool to convey, to convey divine message. Arabic was also special because it was a tool to convey divine message. And his point, you can guess, is that his wall of is also special because it is being used as a means to convey divine message. Of course, not everyone agreed. And so, I would be interested to know, for example, the encounter between Omar Tal and Cherno Mombeya in Futa Jalon resulted in a confrontation of this issue. Omar Tal was a proponent of the monoglossic ideology of language. That to write in Islamic discourse, it has to be in Arabic. Mombeya had to explain 
that I'm talking to these farmers and herders. How do I get my message across? So I would, I would, I would be interested in hearing what Professor Khan thinks about what is the Islamic language. Is there a, a Islamic language or are there multiple Islamic languages? And your colleague, I'm sure, uh, at Columbia, uh, Professor Bashir Jain, argues sometime that actually English is now the language of Islam. Because judging from the publications, the high rate publications, the top publications, he argues that it could be, it could be said that today, English, once maybe it was Persian. And so is Islam monolingual or is God monolingual uh, or multilingual? And finally, one dimension that really I, I was very fascinated by that theme, and that's the musical dimension of religion, of Islam in Africa. And I think this is an area that is under research. In African languages, especially West African languages, the same verb, the verb to hear, is the same as the verb to understand. Dekinga Wolof, Anani Wolof, Ejam Jam Wolof. In many West African languages, the verb to hear is the same as the verb to understand. What it really means, the implication is that hearing, oral dimension, is a key pedagogical channel to convey information. And I think that actually created an important environment for Islamic for Islamic pedagogy, which began as an oral revelation. So I think this is a very important dimension. And uh, I am uh, really very uh, honored to have uh, been given the opportunity to reflect on these important dimensions. I mean, I have many more, but I think throughout the conversations, uh, we could maybe uh, get into some other uh, dimensions. But thank you very much for this wonderful uh, contribution to the study of Africa, Islam in Africa, and to the corrections of the old uh, problems in the scholarship on Islam in Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Professor Khan, for inviting me to reflect on your important book. It's very heartening that books are finally being written about the intellectual history of West African Islam. Professor Khan's book brings out the richness of the written archive that is awaiting exploration by researchers. He outlines the important work that has been done over the past couple of decades on producing catalogues of manuscripts and bibliographic surveys. For example, the monumental multi-volume Arabic literature of Africa. Hopefully future generations of researchers will explore this rich material and we can lay to rest once and for all the misconception that Sub-Saharan Africa had no written scholarly tradition of note in the pre-modern period. 
I came across this misconception myself when looking at the few works that introduce African philosophy to the Western reader. These works typically emphasize the orality of the African philosophical tradition and discuss the challenges and opportunities that this orality poses. And I was surprised when I read this. In the course of my own research, I had come across substantial works on logic written between 1500 and 1800 by scholars from Timbuktu, northern Nigeria, and Sudan. For example, the 16th century scholar Ahmed ibn Aqid at Timbukti, father of the more famous scholar Ahmed Baba, wrote a lengthy commentary on a didactic poem and logic by the 15th century North African scholar Al-Maghili. This commentary continued to be esteemed and cited by Moroccan scholars two, writing two centuries later. The northern Nigerian scholar Muhammad al-Kishnawi al-Fulani, who was active in the early 18th century, wrote a massive work on logic, taking up almost 300 folios. This would be something like 500 printed pages. That is extant in at least two copies. In these regions, there was also a strong interest in the rational theology of the 15th century North African scholar as Sanusi, whose works were studied, commented upon, glossed, cast into verse, and translated into local languages such as Fulbe. Sanusi's works typically begin by discussing the notions of necessity, possibility, and impossibility. They then provide a rational proof for the existence of God and for God's core attributes of power, life, knowledge, and will. These proofs tend explicitly to be cast in the form of logical syllogisms, carefully constructing an almost Euclidean demonstrative system that purports to prove the truth of the Islamic creed. And yet even a major scholarly work, the Blackwell Companion to African Philosophy, published only a decade ago, does not take into account this material. We can realistically hope, I think, that this scholarly neglect will soon change. I don't have time to take up more than one out of many points raised in Professor Khan's rich and thought-provoking book. As I mentioned, I personally became aware of some of these West African writings in Arabic due to my own interest in the history of Islamic theology and Arabic logic. My impression from reading Professor Khan's book is that logic, mantuk, and rational theology or natural theology, kalam, are not now widely studied in Islamic centers of learning in the region, which is not to say that they're not studied at all, but they don't seem to loom as large as they might once have done. And that the focus at present tends to be on the Arabic language, Quran, Hadith, Islamic law, and in some cases also Sufism. The temptation in the secondary literature has often been, been to think that this focus is a historical constant that pre-modern madrasas, at least in the Sunni Islamic world, always had this focus. My own research makes me skeptical of this assumption. I've already mentioned West African works on logic and rational theology. If we look at the Ottoman curriculum of the early modern period, for example, it's clear that the rational and instrumental sciences were studied intensively. Rhetoric, mathematics, astronomy, logic, philosophy, and theology were staple parts of madrasa education. And indeed, scholars were not supposed to move on to the advanced study of Islamic law or the Quran without an extensive grounding in these sciences. In pre-colonial India, we encounter the same phenomenon. The well-known Dersi Nizami curriculum emphasized the rational and instrumental sciences to an extent that has baffled some modern observers.
The scholarly work of John Walbridge and Asad Ahmed has shown that in the Indo-Muslim case, the introduction of a modern Western-inspired university system did not lead to the extinction of madrasas, of course, but the curricula of these madrasas has tended to become more narrowly, quote-unquote, religious over the course of the 20th century. Disciplines such as rhetoric, logic, philosophy, mathematics, and astronomy have been de-emphasized, sometimes dropped entirely. And the emphasis is now more narrowly on Arabic grammar, Quran, Hadith, and law. The process has been driven partly by the rise of Salafism, which frowns upon the study of the rational sciences, and partly by the fact that disciplines such as mathematics, astronomy, logic, and philosophy are now often studied in modern Western-style universities. Unless I'm mistaken, and I hope that Professor Khan will correct me if I am, a similar trend seems to have occurred in Muslim West Africa since the 19th century. What this means is that we should be wary of considering madrasas as quote-unquote traditional, or as quote, survivals from the pre-modern era. This is not entirely wrong, maybe, but it is certainly one-sided. Hand in hand with the development of a modern Western-inspired university system, madrasas have become more narrowly religious than their pre-modern counterparts. This would be one more, yet one other example of how the rise of secularism creates its antithesis, religion, as a separate compartment of society, a separate compartment of knowledge. This assumption in turn strengthens the false impression of a radical dichotomy between modern universities and pre-modern madrasas. One is secular, the other religious. One is rational, the other is based on charismatic authority. One is bookish, the other oral. One is based on critical thinking, the other on memorization. These contrasts are upheld both by aggressive modernizers who think of madrasas as relics, and by those who think almost romantically of madrasas as sites of a more holistic, less instrumental, less disembodied knowledge. Professor Khan quotes some people who trade upon such contrasts, either to dismiss traditional centers of Islamic learning or to denigrate modern secular universities. He also rightly advises caution about these sweeping dichotomies. I've spent, as has Professor Khan, a good deal of my career trying to recover the intellectual life of the uh, madrasas. And I'm awed by their sophistication and by their uh, vibrancy, their rigor. But when one contextualizes them by, for example, reading biographical dictionaries, which were written everywhere in the Islamic world, one, of course, can see that pre-modern madrasa students and teachers spent years poring over the finer points of handbooks and disciplines that were not overtly, overtly religious and were of little concern to the larger society in which they lived. Among themselves, they could be vain, resentful, disputatious. They often looked upon their education simply as a path to wealth. Criticism from peers or allocation of salaried positions could bring out the worst in their character. Of course, these things are completely unknown at Harvard. <laughs> but in other modern secular universities in the US, especially Yale, they're still too familiar. 
I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. So um, I want to start first by first congratulating uh, Osman for this really wonderful uh, and inspiring book. I very much enjoyed reading it. Of course, I'm bringing, coming at it from a different perspective. But um, uh, growing up myself in East Africa and being very familiar with the traditions of Islam in East Africa, uh, there were lots of interesting comparisons that, you know, that came to mind. But more generally, uh, since I teach courses on Islam at Harvard that are global, uh, I was really very um, interested in reading this particular book because one of the most, um, uh, one of the, you know, the most seminal texts that I teach in my courses on Sufism, uh, but also my freshman seminar on uh, contemporary voices in Islam uh, is a book by uh, Hamidu Khan, uh, The Ambiguous Adventure. And it's really talking about the conflict that a child in West Africa is going, the conflict between a traditional education and the French-style education. And, um, and notions of knowledge, what constitutes knowledge, um, and how is knowledge transmitted. And uh, I often point out to my students when we are reading this, these texts, of course, that this is coming from a particular part of the world, a tradition, but also have them reflect on how we at the modern, in the modern Western university conceive of knowledge and what constitutes knowledge. And, um, you know, we think of, as we, you know, we think about rationality, we think about, um, uh, you know, looking at texts, written texts, philology, and so on and so forth and talking about other forms of knowledge that we do not even consider. For example, knowledge through aesthetic senses or knowledge through the arts, which are so formative in um, uh, not only Muslim societies, I think people in many religious traditions experience their religion through the senses, through some sort of art form, uh, through it could be visual arts or sonic arts or literary arts. And those kinds of discourses, uh, religion is experienced through emotion and the senses, is largely marginalized in the academic study of religion. And what this book actually reminded me very much of is that in this choice between, you know, the conflict between Europhone and Arabophone and the literary and the vernacular and so on, uh, what gets lost in the setting of the university and how much I think we need to, re as we're thinking about what constitutes knowledge and we study religion as a phenomenon, how to bring in these other perspectives uh, onto, into our teaching. Um, and I think for that, it was very interesting for me, the autobiographical component of this. You know, him telling his own story was very powerful and very effective. And I, I saw some of the tensions in there with, you know, some of the tensions that I saw in Hamidu Khan's, you know, ambiguous adventure. 
Uh, and I also connected it with another West African text, uh, Kamara Lay's uh, African Child, L'Enfant Noir. And uh, anyway, so you can see my literary, uh, uh, as my literary take on this uh, on this book. Now, um, some of what actually some of what I had to say, interestingly, has been said by Falu and it's been said by Khalid. So, you know, um, so I'm going to skip, you know, and you know, not repeat some of these things. But I do want to point out the importance of books like this to the field of Islamic studies generally. Um, I think that uh, uh, Osman has talked about, you know, the, the, its importance for African studies and how we conceive of Africa uh, and the African intellectual tradition. But I think it also raises some very important questions uh, that I've been dealing with for quite a while, being uh, somebody who specializes in Islam in South Asia, another part of the world that has been rendered peripheral and marginal in the study of Islam in the, in the, in the Western Academy, even though more than half of the world's population lives in South Asia. And this kind of marginalization and um, uh, rendering things on the periphery in Islamic studies uh, seriously questions, I mean, in my mind, you know, the whole academic um, enterprise in studying Islam and what it actually means and how we, you know, it calls for really shifting our ways of thinking Islam, thinking about Islam, not just with, um, you know, its fusion with the Middle East and the Arab world, which I think is, again, part of the Orientalist legacy, but I think also there are certain Muslims who automatically associate Islam with these uh, with these traditions, um, and trying to expose our students uh, to these other traditions becomes very important, especially at an institution like Harvard, where we have an Islamic studies program, which has been very heavily focused on the Arab world and the Middle East. But how do we train the future generations of students to also engage with these other traditions? Because when they go and teach at universities, they should be able to, from my perspective, to be able to bring these perspectives to think about Islam as a global tradition and be able to bring these kinds of um, viewpoints into their courses, whether they are introductory courses or more specialized courses but trying to create a curriculum that is diverse, uh, that is inclusive, uh, and um, creates a sense of belonging. And this notion of belonging, I should mention from my own experience, um, having been uh, brought up in East Africa, um, and then coming here to Harvard um, to study Islam, and I had some wonderful teachers here, including Bill Graham, um, and Anne-Mary Schimmel, and so on. Uh, but I very soon came to realize that the kind of Islam that I was being exposed to here was not the kind of Islam that I'd experienced in East Africa. It was a very different world. And it always was something that I questioned, that why is it what I experienced was not reflected here in the, in the curriculum. So in this sense, I think that uh, this um, this book actually 
re-emphasized for me the, the very, very great importance of diversifying our curriculum in Islamic studies and creating really a curriculum that is inclusive of, of different Muslim voices and taking voices that have been rendered peripheral for a variety of reasons, um, uh, uh, historical reasons, political reasons, um, uh, and bringing them into conversation with each other. And in this sense, of course, I think we're very lucky, uh, fortunate here at Harvard uh, with, the, uh, with the gift of Prince Al-Walid bin Talal of having professorships uh, that are specifically to try to broaden the coverage of Islam beyond the Middle East. And of course, uh, Professor Khan's appointment has shown, you know, uh, has shown the importance of broadening these kinds of perspectives on Islam. It's already had a great impact, I think, on the curriculum and the way we think about Islam here. The, um, I think the other thing that uh, struck me in this, uh, in this book, again, it's perceptions of um, how we think about Arabic. Again, it's that, you know, you again have this stereotype of Arabic as a Middle Eastern language. And in fact, we know that Arabic is a cosmopolitan language. And, you know, it's used all across in very many different Muslim societies, whether you're in Indonesia or you're in South Asia, uh, wherever you are, the Islamic intellectual tradition, uh, 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 an important part of it is Arabic, and then depending on the part of the world you're in, you might have Persian, but then you might also have um, vernacular traditions. But this conception of thinking about Arabic as a cosmopolitan language, and not just a Middle Eastern language, is again, I think, very, very important, because it's, again, it's another sort of label that has been put on the Arabic tradition. Uh, that is far, far more broader than the Middle East. And I think if um, the, the limitation of this label has meant that traditions that are in Arabic in other parts of the world beyond the Middle East are not included in our survey courses on Arabic literature or, or Arabic um, intellectual uh, traditions. So, and I was also reminded this very much on, when, um, on a trip that uh, Professor Khan and I uh, and other colleagues took to China uh, a couple of years ago, uh, where we were, look, we were talking about Islam in China and some of the scholars there who presented on their Arabic traditions and their texts. And I know we were struck by how, you know, again, these traditions that are so vital to talking about Islam in China, and you have libraries and manuscripts and so on, but again, they're in this state of utter, ne utter neglect. So. Um, it, um, so this was another thing that struck me when I was reading this book. Um, a third thing that came to my mind is, again, what uh, Falu mentioned, is this tension between the cosmopolitan and the vernacular. A very strong theme in West Africa, and of course a very strong theme in South Asian Islam, the, the, the tension between expressions and Islamic discourses that are in the cosmopolitan language. In the case of South Asia, it's Arabic and Persian. Uh, because of historical reasons, Persian becomes very important uh, as opposed to the vernaculars. And um, 
and the same sort of questions, is it okay to use the vernacular to engage in Islamic discourse? Is the vernacular an Islamic language? What constitutes an Islamic language? And to me, what, um, what I wish there had been a little bit more in the book, uh, and because in the context of South Asia, um, the vernacular is also uh, poetry in the vernacular, Islamic poetry in the vernacular, devotional poetry in the, is very much, it's uh, very performed. It's connected with the performative arts. So it's connected in music, singing, and performance. And in a Sufi context, gets connected with the Sama and the Kawali and so on. But at the heart of that is that the aesthetics of these texts, as they, as the aesthetics brings the, uh, as performance and practice brings alive the aesthetics of the text, uh, they become a very important form of knowledge transmission. And I would argue that most Muslims um, in South Asia, and I would also, you know, I might even extend it to other parts of the world, uh, experience their Islam, what they, their, their experience of being Muslim through these aesthetic, to these performative texts that are, that are, and that in, in which aesthetics are so important. They're personally transformative, but they also become a very important way in which knowledge is transmitted beyond just the literate and the intellectual traditions. Because the intellectual traditions tend to be for the elites, but at the, at the mass level, you find for people who are illiterate and cannot engage with, the, with, the, um, um, uh, with these intellectual traditions, these traditions become important. Um, I had actually had the same remark that you were talking about, the impact of Salafism on madrasa education, so I'm not going to repeat that, but this is something that I myself, when I was reading this text, really, it, it struck me that some of the issues that uh, uh, with madrasa culture. And then one final sort of point that um, I want to make about this is um, how this relates to uh, um, our pers our the history of Islam in America, the recent sort of discourses of Islam in America and this notion of Islam as the other of America, the foreign, the immigrant, uh, all this, um, all this discourse, um, and, and you know this clash of civilizations perspective that's become so dominant in political circles, it's also very ignorant. Ignorant in the sense that it doesn't really know the history of America. Because people who, their voices the, in the history of America, as I think some of you know, uh, many of the slaves, some people estimate almost one-third of the slaves who were brought over to the uh, to America were actually Muslims, and many of and some of these Muslims were from the intellectual traditions that Osman Khan talks about in his book. They were well versed in Arabic, in intellectual thought, and so on. And of course, the whole history of slavery, what it did to their identity, um, and you know, breaking apart family. But I do think that it's it's very important to talk about that, in fact, the history of America, 
uh, and the history of the, the presence of Muslims in America from this tradition predates the founding of the United States. And that, that's the history that's not being told. And that's the history that not many people are aware of. It needs to be excavated, just as we're talking about excavating histories in Africa and in South Asia. But these are the untold stories. And there have been attempts um, uh, to do some excavation. And there have been scholars, various scholars, who have engaged in this. Um, uh, uh, one of them, uh, uh, Alan D. Austin, talks about African Muslims in antebellum America and looks at some of their narratives based on works that have been preserved. One very, he talks about seven or eight of them. But one very, just to give you an example, uh, one individual, uh, Omar ibn Said, uh, who uh, from, uh, he died in 1864, a writer, Islamic scholar, born and educated in what is now Senegal, but he was enslaved and transported to the United States in 1807. And while he was enslaved, he still wrote books, works on history and theology. And there are about 14 works that he wrote. But he also uh, wrote an autobiography in Arabic about his experiences. And even though people claimed that he um, uh, that he had been converted to Christianity and so on and so forth. Uh, but the evidence from his writing shows that, um, based on his writing, that he continued to be a practicing Muslim. So you find dedications to the Prophet Muhammad on his Bible. And, um, um, uh, in a, and, on his, um, and in a card dated 1857, in which he wrote one of the Quranic um, uh, verses, he talks about Lord's Prayer, he talks about Jesus, but he uses Quranic descriptions of Jesus in his understanding of, of Christianity. And of course, because this was all in Arabic, people didn't know what he was, he was <laughs> writing. Uh, but it was, very, it was an affirmation of his Muslim identity through the Arabic, and a continuation of those uh, traditions. And uh, as I said, you know, he's written 14 manuscripts in Arabic, and some of these uh, manuscript collections um, um, are now in the Wilson Library at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. But this is, again, a whole history of Islam, in, uh, of African Islam, and its intersection with American history that I think needs to be you know, more thoroughly investigated. There needs a lot more research. But it also, hope, you know, but I think it also needs to be more brought to the public consciousness. Because in this current discourse about Islam, when you bring in, when you start thinking about Islam as intrinsic to the African-American experience, that this is part of this, it really shifts the discourse, the, the contemporary discourse, and questions you know, this othering of Muslims that, that takes place when you start thinking about that the role that, um, the formative role that these Muslim voices played in the, in the formation of the United States. So these are just a few comments I wanted to, um, to share with you. But again, once again, Osman, thank you so much for this really wonderful book, which I really enjoyed reading. Thank you.
responses opening up the book in so many interesting ways. Usman, would you like to make some comments back um, to your respondents? Uh, they raised various questions. Would you like to? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I am really extremely grateful to my colleagues, Falungom Khalid bin Ali Asani, for the reading of this and for the very important questions and uh, critiques. So uh, I will start answering some of the questions of Fallu. Uh, and then uh, Khalid and then Ali Hassan. So uh, you ask a question about the Tijaniya uh, being a synthesis of all the Turuq uh, and th that was indeed the claim which is very uh, controversial but the term used, you know, the, the claim for Shaykh Ahmad Tijani himself is that he was a Khatm al-Awliya, the seal of saints uh, so, uh, but in the tariqa, is that a synthesis of the of of all turuq? And you know, it it was very exclusivist in the sense that you cannot be affiliated with more than uh, that tariqa, which was uh, kind of very different from earlier turuq, where you know people could be affiliated to many many turuq at the same time. Um, Sheikh Ahmed Tijani himself, having been affiliated to Khalwatiya to Nasiriya and, and other, other, other Turuq. Now your question about the language of God and the hierarchy of languages, is God uh, monolingual or a polyglot? I think the idea that Arabic is the language of, the, of Jannah, of, the, of paradise, is shared certainly by many Muslim scholars, but you are quite right that also many refute the notion of language hierarchy, saying that, you know, uh, African languages are important, and uh, and uh, <coughs> recently I came across a whole exegesis of the Quran in uh, Wolof by Muhammad Dem called Maurid Dhamaan fi Tafsir al Quran, so uh, which actually refutes some of the assumptions of uh, uh, the Ajami literature that it was mostly for. Uh, you know, clarifying to the masses complex notions of, uh, of Islamic theology. So your point, uh, you know, that languages are equal, uh, uh, you know, and particularly among the murid who produced a lot of very uh, elaborate uh, and sophisticated text in, in, in Wolof, uh, I think is, is, is quite, uh, quite, quite valid. And uh, you raise a few more important questions, like you know the idea of cosmopolitanism, the idea of uh, what you call plasticity of ethnicity, you know the notion that these were fluid, you know, and they have remained fluid. And the wall of word is quite the wall of expression that uh, a name doesn't. Doesn't leave anywhere, meaning that you know, people who move to some area, you know, can assim be assimilated and change language. And the work of one very prominent uh, Senegalese Arabist named uh, Musa Kamara proves that. You know, his work 
Zuhur al-Basatin fi tarikhi sawadin in which he, you know, uh, which is a kind of <coughs> uh, history of the, you know, valley of the Senegal River in which he explains how, you know, people from different ethnicities, you know, were, you know, assimilating to, uh, you know, al-Pular and, and, and changing language. And, you know, for quite a while, it took long for anthropologists to, you know, uh, to, uh, to, to, to understand that, you know, that, the, that, that people were, you know, uh, changing eth uh, ethnic groups and, you know, <coughs> whereas the dominant readings that we have of uh, post-colonial identities was that, you know, these uh, are, were kind of very rigid, you know, whereas we know that they have been uh, really fluid. And that's something that I try to explain through, uh, you know, the discussion of this intellectual tradition. For example, the Pular language was the second most important Islamic language in West Africa. And uh, many groups who came from different ethnicities but who wanted to pursue a scholarly career would actually, uh, you know, have to study Pular and they may marry in Pular-speaking environment and become, become Pular themselves. So thank you for uh, all your comments. Uh, they are really very helpful. Now let me move to Khalid. Uh, uh, and thank you for your critique. Uh, you are quite right uh, about, you know, uh, very prominent West African scholars like Ahmad Baba's father or uh, Al-Kashinawi who, you know, wrote very important uh, treaties <coughs> of uh, theology of uh, uh, and, and Ahmad Baba himself is, uh, has contributed to Maliki jurisprudence. Now, uh, your critique is uh, really well taken that uh, <coughs> uh, mathematic, uh, logic, kalam uh, are not discussed in the chapter dealing with the core curriculum. Uh, so that, uh, but however, in many of the uh, manuscript collections and in the chapter, first chapter, in the first chapter, Geopolitics of the Source, where I address, you know, the work, you know, uh, on Islamic manuscripts, I actually, uh, you know, uh, encountered many collections in, that would include works of Mantik, of uh, of uh, of kalam of uh, of uh, so, so so however i think there are they were uh, there was a hierarchy in the in this uh, scholarly uh, milieu and some who were extremely learned top elite who must have you know uh, who read so much and be trained in so many disciplines you have others <coughs> you know in between who knew some basic texts in the Quran and others who knew only just the Quran. So certainly that among the top scholars, uh, there were uh, a few who were uh, quite learned uh, in, uh, in logic. And we've had discussion with you about Mauritanian uh, female scholar and their work on logic. If they have produced those works, it meant that they were circulating and, and, and were studied. So, so quite, you are quite right that uh, 
although I don't identify them, you know, in the in the study of the core curriculum, and uh, because the methodology was, you know, based on how many uh, texts are cited by a certain number of important scholars as part of their curriculum, and how many such texts are found in some of the collections. I think that that methodology may uh, cause the, you know, maybe because of the limitation, but certainly they were people who studied those uh, disciplines and uh, right and before you know before colonialism. So now Ali raised also many important questions about Sheikh Amidukan. And when I, I was reading uh, the book, I thought of Sheikh Amidukan, you know, uh, and uh, his uh, adventurous, uh, uh, um, ambiguous adventure in you know the rigors of Islamic uh, uh, education. I explained in the book that you know I couldn't play soccer because there was no time to play soccer. I had to go to two schools, you know, this French school in during the day, the Arabic school in the evening. And there was no time to learn anything, you know, uh, to do anything else as a child. It was very uh, frustrating. So uh, some of the points that you made, you know, about the importance of diversifying our curriculum here at Harvard in Islamic studies, you know, through, uh, you know, the appointments in the other field is of obviously very critical. And we hope that this uh, not only would, uh, you know, uh, enable students to have more uh, course offering, but same time would uh, you know influence the way that you know Islamic studies is uh, is, uh, is structured, and that you know there will be uh, that will be very beneficial. And on your point about uh, Islam in the Americas, uh, true, you know it has been present here for the. 15th century, and, and there is a paradox. It's that for almost four centuries, the only Islamic presence in the Americas was that of West African slaves. Only Islamic presence in the Americas was that of West African slaves. And they were able to uphold the five pillars of Islam to pray. If in the Catholic colonies they were, uh, uh, they were, for, they, they, they were forced to convert, in the post Protestant colonies until the 18th century, they were actually not allowed to convert to Christianity. So they were able to, uh, you know, continue to, you know, to, to practice Islam in some form. And there is a wonderful book by Sidian Juf uh, entitled, entitled Servants of Allah, Enslaved Muslims in the Americas, in which she explained, you know, how Islam was able to uh, uh, survive in here in the United States, despite the many obstacles to the, you know, transmission of uh, of uh, of of, uh, of Islam because slaves, you know, didn't live long, and they weren't able to build solid families so that they can transmit it to their to early generations. They couldn't proselytize with the, uh, because there were so many who spoke so different languages, but because, you know, there were uh, supply of slaves throughout, you know, from in. Throughout these uh, 20th century, these four centuries of, uh, or, you know, that this, uh, slavery lasted from 16th to the 19th century, uh, they were, you know, literate Muslims who were being brought here, and it is estimated that 20% of the uh, slaves who came from West Africa 
were actually Muslims, and some of them were quite learned because the Islamic education system was already in place, and people were learned, they could read and write, and there is an emerging literature that is addressing now the, this, uh, you know, uh, Islamic um, uh, intellectual tradition among the slaves and the practice of Islam. And uh, so uh, it is estimated that about 2 million of the slaves who landed here, uh, now the total estimate is 12.5 million, you know, according to the Dubois database based in Atlanta, that in 36,000 voyages were brought here, and uh, about 2 million might have been Muslims, according to Syrian youth. And among them, quite a few were uh, learned because you know, Islam was widespread, and they were uh, centers of learning in, 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 in there when, uh, when, when these people were enslaved and brought to the Americas. Now, the paradox is that by the 19th century, the Arabs, you know, started to come. And in the 20th century, West Africans are a very small, tiny minority among the Muslims in the United States, one-third being Arab, one-third African-American, one-third maybe South Asian. And the West Africans are a very, very tiny minority, whereas for centuries they used to be the only Muslim presence in the, in, in the United States. So uh, thank you all for your many, uh, for your insights, for your critiques. Uh, very helpful, and uh, so now I will open the floor, right? Yeah, yeah so we have um, about only about five, seven or eight minutes, so maybe we don't need to turn the chairs around and so on. And I think uh, Usman can just take some questions from the audience or comments. Is that okay? Think you have something to say? No, I just want to say that uh, it wasn't only in the United States, but in all the, uh, in the new world, there were Muslims, the most prominent being, in fact, in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Because they had a Malay rebellion, you know, which just before the abolition of slavery mm -hmm. in Brazil, this was a very important factor, you know, in the abolition of slavery in Brazil. So we should also include. Uh, right, I, I said in the Americas. Yeah, it I was not well just. I, was, I thought you said United States. No, no, I said uh, you know in in the United States maybe twenty percent in what became the United yeah. States. But, but, but in the Americas, and particularly in Danish and other Protestant colonies, they were not uh, allowed to, you know, to convert until the 18th century. So that's why, you know, yeah. they, they were able Actually, to... Actually, the main point I want to make is that, you know, despite the, uh, the arrival of the British and the colonization of Nigeria, thinking particularly of Nigeria, northern Nigeria has released solidly Muslim. Has what? Solidly Muslim, mm -hmm. Northern Nigeria, mm -hmm. and I was hoping that you would also mention the Sokoto Caliphate, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, as a center, you see, of learning. Mm -hmm. you know. And in fact, there is uh, in many there is a certain uh, Islamic revival, mm -hmm. not just in Northern Nigeria but all over in Yoruba land, mm -hmm. for instance. There's now something like the, an Islamic revival, mm -hmm. you know. And in return, precisely to those texts mm -hmm. that you are mentioning. So we don't know what this is going to uh, produce, mm -hmm. what the result would be. Mm -hmm. But that's a major factor. Mm -hmm. In any case, one also a major factor in the, uh, the there's a whole debate mm -hmm. on Sharia law, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's one of the major factors mm -hmm. in the division between North and South in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so we. There are positive aspects, but there's also that other 
what you might call the negative aspect, mm -hmm. leading to certain you know, tensions mm -hmm. within the, the country. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so you're right. Northern Nigeria is, uh, you know, um, Islamized predominantly. But southern Nigeria also, Yoruba land also is, you know, about 40% are Muslims among the Yoruba. Well, maybe not 40 We don't know. Yeah, the, the, well, the estimate was 40% Muslim, 40% Christian, 20% traditional uh, religion. Um, in, in any case, yeah, so, so in, the, in, in, in the book, actually, I discuss a lot the intellectual production of the Sokoto Caliphate, okay. particularly Usman Danfojo, Abdullahi Danfojo, Muhammad Bello, Nana Asmau, who also, yes, yes, so I... Right. Okay, I have time for maybe two more, two more com uh, comments. Okay. So we mentioned um, the written history, uh, um, written history is a mark of civilization, yet a mark of an uncivilized civilization is orality. Um, what about the positive connotation of Semitic culture? And here I'm speaking specifically about the Jewish environment, mm -hmm. or we're talking about Aramaic, mm -hmm. Syriac, the Torah, Midrash, Talmud. Mm -hmm. None of those are all positive connotations, and maybe because they are um, biblically connected, mm -hmm. but the negative connotation comes when we speak about Arabic, which is also Semitic. Mm -hmm. So, so, so uh, what is the point? What was the point about? Uh, so, so if they're both oral, um, and so if they're both oral and uh, the mark of a civilized uh, people, mm -hmm. um, is that they have a written tradition. Mm -hmm. And the written tradition mm -hmm. um, was not widely known or at least not widely discussed mm -hmm. uh, about. Uh, okay, so I don't want to imply at all that, you know, uh, written is civilized and oral is not. <laughs> or I think that even the dichotomy oral and written needs mm -hmm. to be com complicated because mm -hmm. The scholars use text, but uh, you know most of the transmission of knowledge was uh, was also oral. You know, mm -hmm. so it's not that, uh, and and many actually uh, memorized the text mm -hmm. and didn't even need text in order to to teach it. Mm -hmm. So so just the point I am making is not that you know uh, oral is inferior and written is superior. Uh, I am just saying that there is an aspect of uh, African intellectual history, which was known at this West Africa for a long period. It's because they were stereotyped as having been oral uh, for, for most of the time. Mm -hmm. But I don't certainly even imply that, uh, that there are no complex uh, forms of knowledge whose transmission uh, does not require, uh, you know, be it's being written, even orally, there might be complex forms of knowledge that people transmit orally. So, uh, uh, did I answer your question? I think so, and I, and, and I was just trying to um, flesh out um, if we look, if we're looking um that maybe now the, the positive connotation of what is written is better, and that people think that it has always been that way, no. and that there the merit of, uh, I guess, memorization or of, or um, the exercise of morality is rigorous. Mm -hmm. okay. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I just wanted to comment on the uh, <coughs> the uh, uh, materials produced by uh, uh, enslaved Africans in the diaspora. Uh, 
There is actually uh, a text for bringing that up. There's actually a growing corpus of both Arabic and Ajami texts mm -hmm. uh, that are found across the Americas, mm -hmm. Brazil, Trinidad. Uh, I just read about one case of uh, a slave called Abu Bakr Asidiki mm -hmm. in Jamaica, who was more educated than his master. And when his master found out, they asked him to keep records of his transaction. Mm -hmm. And he did so in English Ajami using the Arabic script to write English. Mm -hmm. So there is, uh, in fact, uh, I, I have actually begun to develop uh, the corpus of this text. Right. And I'm hoping to have a PhD student who will take one. Yeah, and to uh, answer to Professor Irele, Ibiola Irele, actually, yes, in Brazil also, there were many slave revolts that were led by Muslim scholars. Yeah. And uh, and also in the book of uh, Sylvia Njouf, she explained that they had Quranic schools, they taught, uh, and they were supplied, you know, copies of the Quran and other Arabic literature by missionaries. Um, yeah. One last question. Yeah. Uh, so if you could answer very quickly, I had a question concerning conventional scholarship to which you're seeking to respond to. Uh, the ignorance towards written sources, is, is it primarily due to uh, a, a misunderstanding of, of genres of writing and, and uh, which would result in uh, the inability to write about those sources on their own terms? Or is it just outright ignorance and an awareness that there are such uh, written sources? I think it's a very long story, but let me try to you know give a quick answer. Uh, first of all, there was a problem that after colonialism, the educational system in European languages was, was, was established in most of these countries. And scholars like historians and all those, and all philosophers, intellectuals, uh, you know, wrote in European languages and they didn't know Arabic. So that was one, one, one main problem. So that many, uh, you know, uh, you know debated, wrote about the production of knowledge in Africa without even, you know, making reference to this intellectual because they didn't know. Uh, and one second po problem was that, you know, they were isolated, you know, they didn't uh, speak to each other, intellectuals from the Arabic tradition and those from the uh, uh, European tradition. So that, the, you know, each, uh, you know, uh, the, so the Ar 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 Arabists, you know, wrote, they created circles, they debated, but, you know, they were isolated because of the dominant Western uh, languages. A third problem was that a lot of the, you know, archive, Islamic pre-colonial archive was, uh, some of it was stolen by the French, the Moroccan, and so many others. And also after colonialism, some were destroyed. Other people, you know, just buried their books because they didn't want them to be taken. So there are many reasons why, uh, why this it took so long, you know, for people to really uh, uh, study this tradition. But it is, things are changing now. So I think uh, we've had a very rich discussion, eye-opening for all of us, certainly for me. I think we should thank our three discussants for very insightful comments, and especially Usman Khan for writing such a wonderful and provocative book.